Welcome to The Maker and The Merchant with Fergus Elias and Lee Isaacs. That's lovely. So, um, yeah, dude, how are you? You're the one who's actually doing stuff that matters. And how's it going so far? It's day two. Yeah, day two, day day one was a bit of a bitch, but day two, day two feels nice. Yeah, so we, what have we done? We're in Chardonnay, which all feels, it, it all feels topsy-turvy this year. We've opened up the, the presses for Chardonnay. Usually that's among the last to come in, but the acids have dropped appreciably and the sugars have been really high. So, you know, we've got stuff coming in now with potential alcohol of 10, 10 and a half and, and acids at 11, 12 and 10 so really good sort of sparkling wine territory and some yeah. still wine territory there as well so really and we i got a call from one of my growers who was very excitedly telling me that they were going to pick the whole vineyard today and they were really pleased with themselves and i said well that's very nice but i only had you scheduled to pick half your vineyard and so if you picked all of it you'd pick nearly twice you, you would pick twice what i was expecting and what i'd scheduled but it was too late at that point. It turned out they'd already picked two thirds, so they rolled through. So instead of a nice gentle, we'll do eight tons plus a little bit here and there. So probably yeah, you know yeah. twelve to twelve to fourteen tons. We bought in twenty eight yesterday, and I think I was a little ambitious because I left most of the team doing production. We still had some disgorging to do, so I left most of them <laughs> sorting that out. And it was only at about two or three o'clock when I realized the deluge of grapes I was about to sort of un- I was about to what's but, the word but t- 28 tons in a single yeah. day a quantum of grapes you've got you when you when you spec a winery and you spec your spec your presses and capacity you need to spec to be able to take your entire harvest in within 10 days so the assumption is some sort of doomsday events happened like a big pile of mildew whatever something's happened and it means that you've got to get your entire crop in under a fortnight and so then it's then then you just have to do the maths so 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 far vintage 2022 is going it's going, all right, <laughs> it's going really well mate i'm having i'm having the time of my life uh, no, it's, it's going well we're sort of we're, we're okay we're yeah 28 tons in um you know it's it is a lot but it's it's we can we can cope with more you know the sort of capacity for the winery is Forty to fifty tons a day, if we really have to. And how easy is it? You know, you watch uh, like the the Top Gun Maverick is a really good example. Yeah. So here's here's just a spoiler up. If you've not yet seen Top Gun Maverick and this film you want to watch, what you need to do is stop listening to this for probably the next two minutes. You know, in in obviously Top Gun Maverick, hopefully people mm. heeded our warning and are falling through this where they, they basically discover an, an old F-14 that's been sat on the runway for oh, 20 yeah, yeah. years. And Classic. they basically just jump in and flick a switch and turn it on and it's ready to go, which would not happen because it takes like six hours to get a plane ready, right? <laughs> What's that in terms of the winery going, well, we're ready for 20 tonnes today. Suddenly, like, no, we've got an extra 20 tonnes coming. How difficult is it to get things ready to cope with that? To be honest, it's it's a matter of scheduling. So it's actually it's it's really dull. Getting getting ready to press a big day involves scheduling your fruit in and making sure that the presses are never empty. So if you think it takes about two and a half, three hours to run, no, three hours to run a full cycle from from start to finish for a for a champagne press cycle. We've got three four ton presses. You've got a 40 minute loading window and then a sort of 20 minute emptying and clean down so you've got right. 40 minutes at the start of the day to load your press then you run the press for three hours then you've got a 20 minute clean down and then you've got 40 minutes again to, to load it so you're looking at you know four and a half hours per cycle for the for each press if you've got 40 tons to process and three presses you need all three of them to run at least three times probably four because 40 tons doesn't necessarily equate to 10 press loads because you might have three and a half tons of Chardonnay 9.5 and then you might have two tons of Chardonnay 9.6 and I wouldn't want to put those together necessarily because I might I might go actually that 9.6 might make something really interesting so I'll keep that separate so you're looking at you know 10 to 12 press cycles minimum spread across your three presses so each press is going to run for at least 12 hours in that day 
So then it's then it's just a TikTok. You need to know make you need to make sure that the minute fruit's coming in and the minute you've got enough for a press load or you've got you, you need to know what's going to be in next. It's actually really dull, but for me it's really exciting because it's that's the fun bit is you know, I'll write a press plan at eight o'clock in the morning when I get in. By nine o'clock in the morning, one grower will have called me and said, Oh, I'm running late. Another one would have said, Oh, I picked 20 tons. Thank you very much. Insert grower's name here. And so that press press plan's already gone out the window, and I've got something entirely different in my first press. So it's it's quite fun, it's quite hectic, and you have to be flexible, which isn't necessarily something I'm renowned for. I'm notoriously stubborn and inflexible. (laughs) But for some reason, I find a bit of pragmatism when it comes to get the press loaded and get it going now. (laughs) What I'm really hearing here is that having a degree in ancient history would be particularly useful to this process. You know what, Lee? You're absolutely right. Many is the time. I've stood there three in the morning, hosing down the floor. And I, I've just stood there and I've just been like, I'm so glad that I learned about Thermopylae washing. Rooms. I think you, you look at a press, don't you? And it's like the ship of Theseus. And you go, this is the same press that we've had for a hundred mm. years. But over that hundred years, every little bit of that press has been replaced. <laughs> but is, is it the same press? Is it not? Who knows? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very that's nice a, little only fools and horses. I, I was, I was, exactly, it's amazing how many people know about the ship of Theseus, but don't because they know it through the, the, the prism yeah. of only fools and horses, which is, I think, is the greatest, greatest example of Greek mythology permeating into modern society without anybody realising it. It's all going on. It's all exciting. This is day two. When do yep. you, what, what's a realistic time frame to say, you know, obviously day one yesterday, day two to, day two today as I record this mm. what's a realistic time frame and it's still difficult at this point but to say we anticipate the last press load will be Ooh. x you know what I'm going to put money down I think we will finish around about the 15th of October actually that's not Ooh. far four weeks I mean the ripeness is so high and the sugars are really good you know, these are these are numbers that I'm used to seeing towards the end of the harvest than, than towards the beginning. Yeah, four weeks. Let's go with that. It won't be. That's It'll success. be seven weeks of misery, and I'll still be doing it in November. But, you know, we've got to start somewhere. We Aim will, for four weeks. We will see. I saw a thing on Twitter where you were talking to Mike Boyne of Bin 2, this country's, one of this country's best wine merchants, and you were talking about cleaning, and you've basically been cleaning for three weeks right uh yeah no that's that's about as that's about the long and the short of it uh, it takes about three weeks to clean balfour winery from head to toe ready for harvest prep all the presses i mean I, I it's potentially a little generous of myself to describe myself as doing the cleaning for the last three weeks head, head I, winemakers don't don't clean i mean i had to go to the wine gb tasting so that's a day gone so now we're only on to 20 days of cleaning and then you've got holiday you've got weekends so you know it's only really 14 days of cleaning and then somebody's moving house oh yeah i did that i did do that we should probably talk about wine shouldn't we probably talk about wine yeah so in terms of talking about wine i yeah i I don't want anybody to have the impression i actually think about anything that i do or say or think Mm. Uh, because I generally don't. I, I just, I'm too old now. I don't have that level of energy <laughs> or commitment to anything. It did occur to me that I've been to a couple of very interesting events. How? Let me set this up better because you set me up wonderfully in talking about harvest. So we've had a day in the life of a maker. Let's hear about a day in the life of a merchant. Lee, what have you been up to? Well, it's interesting that you asked that, Ferg, because I, I have thought there was completely unprompted as well. By the way, absolutely, we don't uh, we don't script or, or think about this or exchange notes over. WhatsApp no, it's just or... a continuous flow of well, drivel, actually. <laughs> well, that's, that's what one way of putting it. Um, I did receive an invitation to the Dreyfus Ashby tasting. Dreyfus Ashby is run by Richard Kelly. But Richard Richard Kelly is a master of wine, he became an MW in the mid-90s and moved out to South Africa, became a South African. He was out there for sort of seven or eight years, real South African specialist. Some people will know Richard Kelly through his alter ego, Rick, who is responsible for the Liberator brand. 
uh, which is a brand that I myself have, have been connected to and been very privileged to taste quite a lot of their, their, the wines. And I, when I was doing the stupid guitar pointless thing that I was doing on Instagram, um, I did quite a few songs for, for the Liberator. But anyway, I, I went to the, the Dreyfus. So it wasn't the, the full Dreyfus Ashby portfolio. It was their South okay. African portfolio. Let, let me just have a look at this Dreyfus Ashby tasting. Uh, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to get the sound of me rustling the paper. So it I hadn't, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> to the podcast. There were 100 and... So there were 120 wines listed. I know for a fact that there were a couple of wines that were on show that weren't listed and it just depends mm-hmm. how well you got them that produced that's standard for all tastings there's always kind of something under the table now i, I didn't get round sort of half i was gonna say i was gonna say yeah i was gonna say for for a for a, for a listener who maybe doesn't get to move in such exalted circles for instance myself i didn't get invited to this uh but you know for 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 the for those that don't have the opportunity or or, or just haven't yet um, been able to visit a, a, a tasting like that, how many wines do you try? What's your, what's your, what's your upper limit in a day? Where do you, where do you go? Actually, you know what? That's too much. In a day, I would attempt to get through, if I was really on it, purely focused, I would try to get through 80 to 100 wines at a tasting. Good stats. We, now, because I... I didn't have time to stay all day. Had I had time to stay all day, I think I probably would have got through about 80 to 100. As a, as a very quick sort of totter, I think I managed to get through about 60 wines, give or take. Hmm. This one this one was at a great spot who we should give a shout out to. It's called the Old Bridge Hotel in Huntingdon. It's a fabulous hotel restaurant with a wonderful wine shop attached to it. And Ooh. somebody, and I'm not going to say who, but somebody may have gone into that wine shop to pass a bit of time after the tasting before mm-hmm. getting in the car and spent far too much money on wine at their wine shop. But just in case Lapa Trainer is listening to this, I'm not allowed to say that it was or wasn't me. I'm just waiting for uh, to issue a formal statement once my yeah, yeah. gets back to me. Well, I'm sure she won't, she won't listen to this. She listens to me all day. <laughs> she won't listen to this. I was, I was very fortunate. I tasted you know, the thick end of 60 wines, all South African as part of the Dreyfus Ashby portfolio. But South Africa is actually a country that I'm, I'm hugely passionate about for, for many, many reasons. I looked through my notes from this Dreyfus Ashby tasting and the two words that now admittedly, I only, I have a very small vocabulary. I only actually know about 12 words in total. But the words that cropped up most often throughout all my tasting notes of thick end of 60 wines were freshness and purity. Interesting. So I think we could look at South Africa and have this idea of broadly speaking, South Africa is a hot country, lots of red wines. That's what actually yeah. make more white wines than red. But we have this idea of like big, brooding, hefty, full, spicy, dark fruit, heavily oaked mm. kind of thing. The wines that I was tasting weren't doing that. These were fresh, bright, clean, pure wines. The purity of the fruit across reds and whites was tremendous. These wines were expressive. They were expansive wines with lots to say, but they were communicative. They weren't just, it wasn't a wine. That, these weren't wines that were leaving out the glass going, I've got something to say, and like bashing you over the head to say it. Mm. They were having a conversation with you as a, as a drinker and they were evolving as you tasted them. I, I think this is kind of the new face of South Africa. Just this. Nice. I love that. And, that's, and the way you describe it is, is rather poetic. It's really lovely. I, I don't know where it's come from. I think that the real Lee will probably return um, ne- next time we record. Or well, perhaps but you should just drink three or four pints of Camden Hells every time we do it. I think we should. Mm-hmm. But there were, there were two or three things that I wanted to shout out. And I, you know, there, there were loads of wines that I absolutely loved. But, you know, this would that would be an episode in itself, me telling you what I thought of these wines. But the, there were two or three things. I, I tried some of the wines from a juice called Newton Johnson. And that there were several things to try, but they had sort of three different Chardonnays and four different Pinot Noirs. Now, mm. I think within New Zealand, you've got a producer called Kamei River who could legitimately claim to make the best Chardonnay in New Zealand. There are lots of really good Chardonnays in New Zealand, but I think you could legitimately say, do you know who's the best for Chardonnay in New Zealand? Kamei River. And yeah. I think a lot, of the, a lot of us would go, yeah, that's a fair shout. Right. No, be a bit like saying best. who makes the very best sparkling wine in England, and everybody would go, "Well, it's Nightingale, isn't it?" And so with Dermot, Dermot Sucre, absolutely. But Newton Johnson's Chardonnay and Pinot Noirs, and as you went through the different wines, so three Chardonnays, four Pinot, 
it wasn't just, oh, we make another Pinot. It was, you <laughs> could see where these wines were going. You could see a narrative forming through the different expressions. They were, if you're Chardonnay and Pinot fans, Newton Johnson, South Africa, they were stellar, absolutely stellar. I love that. I, I love a collection that's knitted. It's yeah, something, uh, it's, it's so important to get that, to get, you know, because as a winemaker, you're trying to, you want to show, you want to show what you're trying to achieve through your wines. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the sense of place. It's also the sense of the, the way you want to make your wines and who you are. It's, it's such an important thing to get right. And it's so wonderful when you get someone who has nailed it and you've got yeah. four wines that, I mean, they sound delicious. I haven't tried them, but they, they sound phenomenal. They um, were, and, and Bevan Newton-Johnson, who was sort of guiding the tasting, mm. with each Chardonnay or each Pinot, would explain, mm. right, well, hang on, the one you've just tried was from, you know, this site, these soils, and this exposure. Yeah. The next one, the one you're trying now, is it, it, the differences, and then any differences mm. in winemaking. I also tried um, wines made by a really young guy called Sam Lamson, and the, the outfit is called Minimalist Wines. And this is okay. minimal, effectively natural winemaking, absolute minimal intervention. Mm. These wines were so cool. They really? were, and But they were pure. Often I found with natural wines and minimal winemaking, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of funk or dirt or earth or, or something yeah. going on there. Fault. That's fault. These, a, a fault. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, well, one man's fault is another man's fault. No, fault. Um, so there was uh, what he called the experimental Chenin and the experimental Syrah. With the Syrah, there's, you know, different combinations of kind of whole bunch fermentation going on. Kind of mm. the, uh, oak is sort of, you know, it's, it's minimal oak. It's older oak. It's not new oak. So these wines were clean, pure, fresh, expressive, genuinely really exciting wines and 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 Amazing. just the fact that you know that they're, they're, they're he's he's a young guy it's clearly a young new thing going on in south africa these wines were exceptional really really worth a look excellent oh so that's minimalist minimalist wines on that note mm-hmm. there was another producer called lisa or lisa uh, spelled l-y-s-a and, and what was interesting about these was that there were, I think, only two wines I tried from this producer, an Albarino mm. and a Vadello. Now, when you come to South Africa, you don't think about Albarino and Vadello. Again, I, I won't give you my wildly eccentric tasting notes, but there were, there were three words that I've used to sum up both of these wines, and that was long, focused, and electric. Nice. zesty, real kind of power, but enlivening and refreshing. And the other one I'm going to say, there were so many great wines, and I feel bad that I'm not mentioning them all. But the other wines that really, really stood out to me were, get the right paper in for a bit, Mont Blois Estate. So um, B-L-O-I-S, Mont Blois Estate. Blois? Mont Blois? Blois? Hey, Blois. Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm working here. Get me a coffee. Um, Mont, Mont Blois. Mont Blois. If you're from New York, Mont Blois Estate. And we had a 2018 Chardonnay called Quicamp and a 2016 Grootstein Shenin. Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh, what? Layers and layers and layers of complexity for anybody. Nice. With, with wine terminal, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary notes, there was, there was like yes. smoke and development, but freshness and yellow. Both of those wines, absolutely mind-blowingly good. Just, if you like, if you like, who doesn't like, everybody likes complex wines. If you like complex wines, these wines are just every single, not just as you went from a glass to a glass, as you went through a single glass. Mm. Stuff was going on. That's cool. They were lots of great producers that I've not mentioned just for time, basically. Really, really good. I also was very lucky to attend the opening of the newest independent in uh, Islington High Street called Pacific Wines. And what was really interesting about this place, opened by Rachel Gilbert and her father. Uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't meet her father, only met Rachel. Full of passion and enthusiasm. I was just infectious. But what's really interesting about this place is... They specialise in the wines of the northwest coast of America. What's the northwest? So, so, you know, west and northwest. So California, Oregon, looking at listing some Washington. Got about 150 wines in there. I tried 
and, and there was a specific reason for mentioning this. I noticed that I can't hear the sound of paper rustling this time. Uh, that's because I took my notes for this event on my phone rather than uh, a, a sheet of paper. Although, I'm very you know, 21st century. I tried, and for some reason I can't find, this is why I should do it on paper, because I now can't find the pictures that I wanted to, <laughs> uh, to reference or talk about. So I've, I've made a complete mess of this. A wine that I tried that really blew it, lots of really good wines in this Pacific, Pacific wine store, a season to yep. my street, a Californian Albarino, and it eight months on lees, like nice. really textured. Yeah, yeah. Kind of weighty, but still with that zingy, zesty, limey freshness. You know, definitely Albarino. I just wonder, you know, if, if somebody um, can make Albarino in England, you know, I don't know. If uh, it's can funny do that. you should mention that, Lee, but I, I mean, I, I, I'd like it noted in the in the official minutes of this podcast that I didn't bite at the first opportunity to, or, to the second, or, or the second, or the second, or the second, or the second. Yeah, but funnily enough. I've got some Albarino in barrels still from 2021. Um, it's I had no idea. Nearly 12 months early now. I've got three of them. Very excited. We should get quite a lot. Of, we're looking forward to the Albarino harvest this year. This is the thing. We set off with a, a vague plan of our podcast and then we just talk about anything. How yeah, long... We're going to talk about big and stuff. But yeah, no, this is better. This is better. This is better. How, how long... Has Albarino been grown in the UK? So, so the first planting of Albarino, and you have to give credit where it's due, was in Sandhurst Vineyard, which is, to my knowledge, Lamberhurst planted Albarino in around about 2008. It might have been a bit later, might have been 2010, something like that. The, those grapes have made their way into the winery at Chapel Down for a few years now. And we've seen it released, actually, they had their 20... Well, they have 2019 they had an albarino it's in their discovery series actually very good wine works really well they've i've seen it i've seen them blend it with bacchus and it's done interesting things there it's, it's a good variety i found a site which i'm very excited by i'm not going to compare because it's not fair but this site is really bloody good so it's one of our growers and it's it's a phenomenal site and so we've planted, how much have we got? I think we've got about four acres now of Albarino. So, you know, in a good year, we'll be ripping off somewhere in the region of 10 to 12 tonnes. So, so is, you can you do know, that in a, you've got three, four tonne presses. No, I don't do numbers. Yeah, no, it's about five presses. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we, we took our first crop off that in 2021. Uh, an auspicious year to make a wine from a variety this is. I, renowned I, I, again, for its I'm, acid retention. I'm not going to name names, but somebody mm. I know, and I'm not going to say who, did taste that when he was down at Balfour's Balfour Winery they? on the Hush Heath Estate. Uh, and he thought it was particularly exciting. I too buy into this uh, person's view. I am particularly excited by it both as a project and as a specific wine. And in 2021, and I, 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 and I really take exception, actually, because I ran into someone at the wine GB tasting, and he said, oh, God, it, was, it, really, it really irked me, because he, he said, oh, everyone hated making wines in 2021. 2021 was crap for making wine. And this man uh, is a consultant, and he, he helps other vineyards. And I was just like, that's not true. We made some really interesting wines. And Very right broad generalisation, isn't it? It felt a little bit like that. And the Albarino <laughs> was a prime example. It shouldn't have done well because 2021 was wet, miserable, cold, and not particularly exciting from a climactic point of view. But the site was very good. It got to 70 Ursula, which is, you know, 10, 10.5% alcohol. The acids were, were a little high, and they were 14. But it's Albarino. <laughs> 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 it's, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty high. Yeah. Should we... Uh, should we talk about wines? I suppose we should, shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, this is going to be a super long episode, but I think that's what people want the third episode to be. A yeah, people actually really asked. Meaty, this. chunky. Yeah, they, they basically want this to be as long as a single Genesis song. Did you, yeah, that's did you right, know? Lee. Yeah, that's did right. You know? I, just, I just dropped a reference to a band that is older than me. Did you know, right, that there were mm. more seconds in a single Genesis song than there are atoms in the observable universe. 
I didn't. I always thought there were more grains of sand in the sea than there were. Wait, no, other way around. <laughs> so this is right. If, if there's something in physics and maths, it's called the combinatorial explosion. Right. And it's the way that numbers increase. So the best example to use from that is a chessboard, which is 64 squares, 32 pieces, as you well mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. you haven't you I'm... haven't let me win a game for far too long. I'm getting yeah. I'd like to point out I won our last game. Yeah, you did. As you've won yeah. like ninety five percent, and the five percent I've won is because I, we were playing during harvest, and you were really tired and not concentrated. There was that time yeah. I was quite drunk as well. That that never yeah, played think, chess drunk. I think you should do that a lot more. Often. I think I lost three games in an evening. That was that was a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. On, on a chessboard, exactly after the first two pawns have moved, there are more possibilities of combinations of moves than there are atoms in the observable universe. Scary, that isn't it? It's frightening. Numbers, yeah. numbers are amazing. Numbers. But we, we, so talking numbers, I've got some interesting numbers for you because okay. we, we should we should talk about wines at uh, yes at, at some point. So let's talk about the top ten global brands. To clear where this information has come from. This is the top ten global brands for twenty twenty. And this is based on sales of nine litre cases. That's cases of 12 bottles for 2019. And this came from the drinks business in July 2020. Here's the top 10 global wine brands 2020 by sales of nine litre cases. Okay. Mm-hmm. In at number 10, Echo Falls, 3.1 million cases. So this is globally. Okay. It's top 10 global. So, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of bottles, isn't it? That is. That's... How many cases, and, and this is to contextualise, this isn't to make fun, which is normally what I'm doing, but to context, how many cases, are you, what, what's your annual production at Balfour Estate? Uh, I'm just trying to divide that by 12. Uh, we, we make about 33,000 to 40,000 12 litre cases a year. Number nine, and they've dropped considerably from where they were when I last saw the figures for this, which was 2017, Number nine, Casanova del Diablo, 5.8 million cases. Number okay. eight, one that I'm sure all our listener will know, Great Wall, 7 million cases. Great Wall, that is a brand owned by China Foods Limited. In at number seven, Hardy's, 8.9 million cases. Number six, mm. Sutter Home, 10.2 million. So the numbers are starting to jump up a little bit here. Number five, Robert Mondavi, 10.5 million. Number four, at 10.7 million cases annually, Chang Yu, another Chinese brand. So two Chinese brands in the top 10 global sellers. Here we go for the top three. In at number three, 11.5 million cases, Yellowtail. Number two, Gallo, 15 million, owned by EJ Gallo, obviously. Mm-hmm. And in at number one, so bearing in mind, number the second biggest seller is 15 million cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is in a shed num- load of wine. That's a lot of juice, isn't it? In at number one, Owned by the same company, EJ Gallo, at 22 and a half million barefoot. Now, I know someone on this podcast, and I'm not going to say who, someone on this podcast has a bottle of barefoot. You know, there's, there's some big names in that top 10, right? Yeah. Echo Falls, Casserole del Diablo, Yellowtail, names that I'm sure our listener will know. The biggest selling wine brand globally is Barefoot. Before we explore this a little bit more, from a winemaking perspective, what does good look like to you, Ferg? Now, you see, now you, you, here you pose a very interesting ecumenical question. For me, and this is, this is a very personal thing, for me, a, a good wine, and this is, is, is a wine that is fault-free. That's the first thing I look for when I, when I taste wine. And because part of it is it's my job. The first line when it comes to winemaking is you want to you want your wines to be well made, and then you want to look at you know making them expressive and making them interesting and things like that. But if you don't start with a wine that's well made, then you're fucked. You know you can make you can make something that's that's a true expression of terroir and really fascinating wine, and you've you know done lots of really interesting things with it, or maybe you've gone sort of minimalist and you've done nothing to it. You can do all of that and produce a wine that's delicious just before you bottle it but then if you don't have the right protocols in place and if you don't follow the right steps by the time it reaches the consumer 
it's developed a fault maybe it's tca maybe it's and that's not necessarily your fault i'm not you know it's not a it's not a but you know i take steps to make sure that my wine appears as i want it to be and i want it to be fault free first and foremost so good wine for me is fault free what about you how do you define good wine just a good wine this isn't exceptional we 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 we're looking at this is a Wednesday night. What is a what is a good wine? To, a, a good wine to me ultimately is a wine that's balanced. A legitimate question for what what does balanced mean? It's a wine where no particular structural or flavour attribute of that wine sticks out and dominates over the others that may be present. But a, a wine can be very simple and be balanced. C- complexity is, I, I think, complexity makes a wine more interesting, makes it better. But a, a, you can have a good wine that's simple. I relate that to food. The mm. best plate of food I've ever eaten only had three ingredients in it. And yeah. I've never tasted a dish as, as wonderful as that. So it's not about having lots and lots of flavours going on, but it's about everything being... Complexity for me personally is a big thing. I, I like drinks to be more complex in yeah. terms of they offer a greater range of flavours rather than one flavour. If we take our two definitions of good. So these big brands that we've mentioned, Echo Falls, Diablo, Great Wall, Hardy, Sutter Home know through to barefoot the consistency that those wines have to maintain means they have to be fault free and they're very difficult to make because if you think about every every vintage they're trying to replicate the same thing but you don't always have the same base ingredients do you because your merlot doesn't do exactly the same thing every single year regardless of site you're so you're playing around with a base set of ingredients trying to make that do the same thing that you did last year and the year before and the year before if we take a lot of wine like barefoot, if you apply balance, length, intensity, and complexity of a barefoot wine, it won't necessarily score in inverted commas that highly in comparison to a first growth claret. And this is something I do in, in my more so in my lecturing than my sort of straight up WSET teaching. I, I do a little bit of guest lecturing at a couple of of colleges and universities and I always build up to this point of I I spend a lot of time working on how we taste and what makes a good wine trying to separate out the emotional response to something more objective because Mm. we all have an emotional response to our our sensation of kind of flavor and taste that's all controlled by the limbic system which ultimately controls our emotions which is why when you smell something you have such an immediate emotional response to it and it's also responsible for that you know like mum's apple pie kind of thing well you've yeah, you yeah. seen the, the disney pixar film ratatouille and the food critic Great film. That, yeah, like, yeah. one of the best single shots in all of cinema is when the food mm. critic smells a ratatouille and it kind of you have that crash zoom into his eye and it takes him back into his childhood because smell and memory ultimately That's, they're so the center of the brain right I, I i spend a lot of time trying to figure that out and explain to students like you you know it's fine that you like this, but that's not objective. Now, you will try wines that are very good that you won't like, and you'll try wines that aren't very good that you will like. That's fine, but you need to understand what's going on and how to separate them out. So to bring this back to Barefoot, you know, the biggest selling wine brand globally compared to a first growth claret, which is the better wine, first growth claret. It's, it has no more brainer. balance, it's longer, it has more intensity, and it has more complexity. There are other factors we consider as well. And I, but I'm looking at this purely from the fact of what makes the wine good, not how do we enjoy it, who enjoys it, why do we enjoy it, why do we... That, that isn't factoring into this conversation. But what I do, I get to a point with my students where we've explored that and we've, we've done the theory and we've done tasting, and then I present them with a blind tasting where they have a bottle of Barefoot Merlot and a decent claret with some age on it. It's not first growth. Nobody's got the budget for that. But it'll be a maybe a Sandman Grand Cru with 10 years on it, that, that kind of thing. And it's really interesting. And, what, and I always say, look, I'm not expecting you to guess these wines. I don't want you to tell me what they are. That's not the purpose. I just, I want you to taste them and write tasting notes. And then we're just going to explore both of these wines through the tasting notes that you have written mm. to see if we can get to an accurate quality assessment. And it's really interesting that, that most candidates write accurate tasting notes for both wines yeah. because of where, where I do this in terms of their educational sort of mm. steps what i then do is say okay right we, we just go through the tasting notes which one of these two wines is, is the better wine nearly 100 percent of candidates get that you know the claret which they don't know it's claret at this point mm. most of them get that 
that's the better wine. Yeah. And they, they understand, importantly, they understand why it's the better. Mm. Okay, Lee, we think wine number two is better. Okay, great. Why? Well, it is more complex. It's longer. It's got all of that. Okay. Before I unveil the wine to go, right, which one would you rather take home and drink? Mm. A lot of the students go for the, the first one, the barefoot. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And then, and then they fail the course, basically. No. They yeah, don't. well, of course, then um, you throw them out and call them, call them pedants. Um, yeah, um, but, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is this is obviously a, a, the moment to unveil that I am that I am drinking this week, Lee. I have mostly been drinking Barefoot's Californian Pinot Grigio. We actually opened this in the winery, and we opened this in the winery. And the, the, my reasoning was I wanted to run a quick bit of analysis on it because it, just purely out of interest. So I, mm. I wanted to see, and just in case anyone from Gallo are listening. My my results were indicative. There is no, there is. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying they're accurate. I'm saying they. These these were just guidings. <laughs> so I ran a free a free and a total SOT because the classic thing when people talk about big wine and they talk about these huge wine wine producers commercially producing lots and lots of wine and they always go, oh yeah, no, it's the they're always rammed with sulfides and and things like that. And, yeah, and I was I'm I'm curious because. Uh, I wanted to know, so I ran an SO2. So I put I put it through. Uh, the wine came out with a free of sixteen and a total of one hundred and twenty-one. Those figures are not high. Those figures are actually pretty much slap bang middle of the road. It might struggle to get into the quality wine scheme in England. Although I'd imagine when this wine was bottled, which looks like January, that free SO2 was significantly higher. But they're not high. It's not. It's not rammed with sulfites. And and I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, I then managed to calculate the RS by using a nutritional calculator <laughs> online that had the, <laughs> the specifics of barefoot Pinot Grigio. So it's got about six grams per litre of sugar. Again, that's not that that's much That's not sugar. huge, is it? It's... No. I mean, it tastes quite flabby. It's, it's, it's an interesting wine. And, and I'll get on to taste in a bit because actually it is slightly out of balance. The, 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 the acid is too low. It's, the, the acid's probably... Well, if it's got six grams of sugar, the, the acid is probably about five, five and a half. It's too soft and it it, mm-hmm. it loses its interest. But the wine itself really isn't bad. You know, we had it cold at work and no one hated it. No one, no one was spitting it out and saying this is a monstrosity. It's mm-hmm. it's a, it's it's a Pinot Grigio from California. It's a bit flabby. It's not particularly interesting. It's not something that I'm going to necessarily actively reach for again. I'm definitely not going to because actually I I don't drink a huge amount of wine and when I do drink wine I want it to be interesting and challenging and I want to have to think. If I may, there's a question here and this is I I wasn't really sure how to play this out because there's an element of in which I kind of play a particular character and I I rally against certain things in the hope that most Mm. people understand the playing kind of a character and that's kind of my background in stand-up. It's amusing to me to occupy a certain space that allows me to say certain things that I may or may not actually think myself. What's happened is I've been a wine merchant for so long, I don't really know where the line is now between the character of Lee Isaacs, the wine merchant, and Lee Isaacs, <laughs> the wine merchant. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. So the reason you would drink a wine, the reason I would drink a wine would be different, but fairly similar. Yeah. The reasons most people drink wine are probably very different to the reasons you and I drink wine. But I, I want to pick up on something you said there about being challenged i have this hypothesis which again a bit like my nostalgia hypothesis i've done no research and i'm very unlikely mm-hmm. to and you I, absolutely haven't posed the null hypothesis no absolutely not that's that's no. not not with brexit i haven't got a budget for that now i have a hypothesis that so i'm going to relate several things together here so wine film uh, literature and art Mm-hmm. I think most people kind of enjoy most of those things to some level. So, we, we, you know, it's very rare you meet someone who goes, and music, it's very rare you meet someone who goes, I don't like music, I don't like films, yeah. I don't like art. Because most of us can go, yeah, I do, I do like films and music and books, okay? Now, if you say, I like reading and I like books, unless you explore that, that could mean that you like reading Shakespeare or mm. you like reading Dan Brown. Uh, and in saying that, I'm not really doing much to dispel the myth that wine merchants aren't incredibly pretentious <laughs> which is part is part of the character ladies and gentlemen yeah. who knew so my hypothesis is that most people because most people see those things we do for relaxation right a lot of yeah. people see those things as being a, a, some form of relaxation most people don't want to be challenged no you work in nine to five 
whatever that job is, you get home, you've had a crap day, you've had an argument with your partner, kids are running around, whatever. There's all of those things. Your escapism becomes that film, that book, that wine, that album, that piece of art, whatever it is. Hmm. So you don't necessarily want to be challenged by it because you just want to escape into it. I just, I don't think most people want to be challenged by certain things that they no, see think, as, right. as being right. something enjoyable, right? So lots of why, why is Pina Grigio so successful? Because it's not challenging. And to break the character, I'm not suggesting that that's a bad thing. Some, no. Ultimately, no. somebody enjoying a glass of wine, to me, is absolutely, whether that's the, the barefoot Pina Grigio that you've had to go in and be seen buying, Fergus, yep. Yep. Or it's a bottle of, I don't know, something really great from England, like, you know, one of Dermot Sugru's wines or something. I hear Langham makes some nice bits. Lang- oh, nice Langham. Stuff. Langham are brilliant. Yeah. Tommy Grimshaw, yeah. what, what a guy. Yeah, but he's really young, isn't he? Really young. He is, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah he, and he's still got hair. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, on, on his actual head, not, not just his face and chin. <laughs> And he's, he's just he's quite a good-looking guy, really, as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is, isn't he? And he's... Actually, I don't know why I like him. Um, yeah. Young, good-looking, witty, good winemaker. Yeah. Good winemaker he's, he, well. he's, he's He's a bit like James Bond in the sense that, you know, all women want to be with him and all English male winemakers want to be him. I don't think people want to be challenged with things that they innately see as being relaxing. I agree. I think you're right. Which leads us to, why do people drink wine? I, I enjoy drinking because you've got, I enjoy drinking barefoot pink grigio on a Friday night because it just helps me relax after a long week. Like that's, mm. that is as legitimate a reason for drinking wine as any other. You or I opening a bottle of, you know, Tommy at Langham's, whatever it is, because we want to be challenged and excited. That, mm. One is no more legitimate than the other. No, I agree. So this is some information gathered by a YouGov survey. So it's obviously totally trustworthy. This right, is uh, just for the viewers at home. I raised my eyebrows. I keep forgetting did. this is an audible it, it, it thing. Was, it was like watching Roger Moore at his peak. Um, after the recording of this, Fergus is going to go and run over five crocodiles in a swamp. <laughs> I did attempt to find out what questions were used in this survey, but but genuinely couldn't find the information the results of this are based on positive opinions in response to questions asked about particular wine brands as i said i don't know what those questions were this was published in the drinks business in july this year 2022 and this is the top 10 most popular wine brands in the uk in at number 10 martini asti which had a 29 percent positive response rate who the fuck is still drinking that I, did, I didn't even realise that brand still existed, I'll be honest. No. Which is, it's not to discredit the brand. Just, no, no, I, of I course, but I just that. didn't, actually, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, no. It's still there. Um, it's in still at number nine, with a 30% response rate, was Gallo. Mm-hmm. That's now, that's interesting, isn't that. it? That's interesting. It is a big umbrella. But isn't that interesting that that weighs in at number nine in terms of positive response in this questionnaire, where it's actually it's the second biggest selling brand globally. In at number eight, Yellowtail, where mm-hmm. they were number three in the top ten global brands. Number seven, Bollinger. Interesting. So we've got, obviously, we're not just talking still wines at this point. Um, number six, Casadero del Diablo. Number five, mm-hmm. some, I didn't, Don Perig, non of I don't know what that is. I think think they're one of those small grower producer champagnes, aren't they? Yeah, nobody knows that. Number four, Moet. Number three, with a 40% response rate, Jacob's Ditch. In at number two was Echo Falls with 41%. In at number one, Blossom Hill with a 44% response rate. Now, a couple of these wines in this top 10, when these results were reported, they happened to report residual the amount of sugar per one seven mil serving uh hello now they didn't report that for every single but because obviously casserole del diablo for example was blossom hill 44 percent response rate eight grams of sugar per 175 mil that's quite a lot of sugar per 175 per 175 now that doesn't give you the acid and and all that however the, the interesting thing here was in this report the phrase used was it's not the most exciting for the connoisseur. I despise the use of the word connoisseur because connoisseur implies there is some kind of supreme moral arbiter of taste. 
and taste is the enemy of art. However, as an addendum to that, I would say that there is a supreme moral arbiter of taste in wine, and it's me. I, I, would, I would also agree with you. I'd also point out that 34 grams of litre per bottle is an obscene amount of sugar to be throwing into. That is, that is, <laughs> I, that is a I, lot I, of sugar, isn't it? I'm, I'm with you on moral arbitrary, and I totally agree that taste is, is, is subjective and taste is, is individual, but fuck off. 34 grams in a bottle is obscene. You can't do that. In in still wine, that is obscene. In sparkling, that's obscene. I I make a demi-sec. Even that's not 34 grams. Now, what have you got, though? What's in your glass? Well, this week, I've mostly been drinking. I'm drinking 19 Crimes. This is the 19 Crimes 2020 red wine. It doesn't tell me from what this red wine is constructed. It's 14% alcohol. Uh, this is this is a strange. So, so 19 Crimes is a really interesting brand to me. So it's owned by Treasury Wine Estates, who are one of the, the biggest wine producers in the world, not just in Australia. The 19 Crimes launched in 2012. The, the name 19 Crimes relates to there were 19 crimes for which the punishment could result in exile from the UK to Australia. And the story goes that each individual on the label. So there's, there's several different wines available and it's a different person on the label that that person is someone who was uh, considered a criminal in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And it's their image. They, they were a person who was exiled to Australia. And obviously, so it's a, there's a cool story to this, right? And, yeah, and wine yeah. is storytelling. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Now, didn't, they, didn't they used to have the labels where you could actually, you held your phone up to it and, and, it, and it moved or talked or something like exactly, that? Exactly. Exactly what I was going to talk about. Oh, so, sorry. Well, we, we, actually, I'm not sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. It's like we're in slightly finish each other's sentences, isn't it? And there's an app you can get on your device and you hold it over the phone and it gives you aug- augmented reality. So the individual on the phone kind of comes to life and leaps out and they tell you their story. And it's like a minute long and they'll go, my name is Steve. Deborah. Steve. It's always Steve. My name is Steve. I was a sheep rustler. I, I rustled sheep. I, I rustled sheep. We've all, come on, we've all rustled a sheep. We've been on a night out. You've had a couple of Heinekens. You've, you've rustled tipped a, a cow. Sheep. We, you've rustled a sheep. I've, we've all rustled a sheep. Come on. I got caught from me rustling. I was sent you to You must be kidding. Life. They launched this augmented reality label. So you get your app, yeah. you scan your phone and, and whatever. Yeah. And in 18 months, they saw a 500% sales uplift. They did a, 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 they ran a project. It was called 19 Crimes. It was their first project that involved Californian wine, where they had Snoop Dogg collaborating. So he was I on the label that, yeah. and he did an yeah. augment. What we're seeing with this 19 Crimes thing, it's incredibly popular. If you've got that technology at your fingertip, mm. you can, like, how great is that? I've got a bottle of wine here, I can scan it and it tells me a story. The potential for that to reach both casual wine drinkers or diehard you know, people people with a diehard interest in wine. Scan your phone over it, and it'll do. You, yeah, you could it'll even do a thing. You could even choose. You know, do you want full tech data on this, or yeah. do you want the story on it? I'll watch the story. Yeah. That's massive. That's brilliant. Yeah. So, so, um, um, so, folks, give me a bit more of a tasting on your barefoot pink review. Uh, okay. So the nose, there's some fruit somewhere. It's actually, yeah, there's, there's nice. There's a little bit of, there's a bit of pear, and it's like pear skin. It's, it's quite interesting. And then, and then. On the palate, you've sort of got it's like it is. It is slightly flabby. The the acid profile is not quite right for for me. I think that the acid's too low. Sugar that doesn't show particularly either way, so it doesn't feel like it's it's overly sweet. It's you know it's quite a low RS, so that's that's fine. There's a slightly green, almost like sort of melon peel te- textury feel flavour to it, which I which, which which is almost yeah, it's quite enjoyable. It's very nice when it's very cold. I enjoyed it a lot more when it came when we opened it back at the lab. In, in the winery. I've enjoyed it slightly less two and a half hours into recording this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's not something I drink. It's not something I'd necessarily buy again, but it's it's okay. The texture is good. It's fresh ish. I think maybe there's the issue in terms of when we in the trade talk about this. And this mm. is a very broad generalization. Again, there's, there's a huge nuance conversation to have it. The reasons that mm. you've expressed for maybe not liking it, which are totally valid, the mm. people that do like it would go, what? Or, or, yeah. or I don't exactly. get it, or I'm not interested, or I don't care, or there you go, that's fine. Yeah, well, they might it. just go, I disagree. I, I like well, it. I, I like yeah. that the acid's lower. I like that the sugar's, the sugar comes through more. Isn't there, in, in any form of artistic expression, 
there's a natural tension between the consumers of that piece of art and the people who, in inverted commas, know what makes art good. Right? And that tension, that's the bit where you go, what you've said is entirely about the consumer of it. How can we how can we bridge that gap and go, okay, I get what you're saying, that's cool. It just mm. I'm happy drinking it. And then they understand that that's fine. It's that yeah. idea of if we go to an art gallery and I say, I really like that painting, and you say you don't, everybody goes, that's fine. I just yeah. And I'm not trying to make a straw man out of it because I think the wine, the wine world does make create more of a bogeyman than actually exists. But in wine, you might have that. This is the best wine you'll ever try, but I don't like it. Yeah, but this is the best wine you'll ever try, but I don't like it. And then you end up in a very Monty Python-esque kind of spiral. I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk about this 19 crimes on the nose. It's quite bright fruit. It's kind of this, this cherry, there's a bit of red plum, there's some raspberry, there's a little bit darker fruit. But it's all, to my nose, that's a, it's a little bit confected, which doesn't mean it's unpleasant. Mm. But to me, I can't go, oh, it feels a little bit yeah, like yeah. it's been put there. There's a touch of spice. There's, there's a really big hit of vanilla. Yeah. And, and the vanilla is so pure to the point where, again, I sort of go, feels like it's been put there. Mm. But I could see why somebody would sit down and go, that smells wonderful. Like it's, bright, it's warm. There's a richness to it. And when you taste it, it actually handles alcohol pretty well. Well, it's 14%. Um, that's a good chunk of alcohol to, it, to it handle. It is. No, I, can, I pick that up, particularly at the back of the palate, because what does happen is you get this big hit of, like, on entry, big hit of quite sweet flavour. So, again, you get the big cherry, big plum, mm-hmm. and berry fruit, huge slice of vanilla. For me, that flavour disappears relatively quickly, and that's when the alcohol sort of shows. There's a real, like, red cherry candy floss thing going on, but it's not... It's not innately sweet. There's a sweetness to it, but I've had other sort of like really big branded reds. This Mm. has some sweetness to it, but it's not sticking out. It feels relatively short. I think the flavour disappears relatively quickly. I I can totally see why somebody would drink that. It's not a bad wine. No. It's not a faulty wine. No. It's... Is it balanced? Going back to Blick? I I don't think it's completely balanced. The the finish is too short and, and there is the sweetness to it. Yeah doesn't it's got a bit of intensity to it that's good i, I think that intensity is kind of been kind of been put all winemaking is putting stuff somewhere isn't it it's yeah. not as complex i think as you feel it is but what that tells me is it's really well made like somebody's yeah. worked really hard on this and they've done a really good job of it yeah no i i'm i'm i sit in a similar boat i actually tried i don't think it was the 21 i think i tried the 20 of the red my my only comment was that i thought the oak wasn't particularly well integrated for me I, it, mm. it, it tasted like chips rather than barrel yeah yeah and, that, but it but i could pick that out that was the that was yeah. that was my only real qualm with the wine itself was actually everything else was actually quite quite good yeah. but then i could tell they hadn't it wasn't barrel it was it was yeah. chips and stave and and that's but again that's you're quibbling really yeah when you're getting the, down the, to the, that the, 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 the oaking in it sticks out a bit but mm. Can I find anything obvious in this to take apart? No. No. How can we then use this brand as a signpost to consumers who might want to explore wine further, should they want to? But anyway, Ferg, this has been really interesting, talking about big brands, supermarket wines. Was there was there a reason for talk? I think there was a reason, wasn't there? Was there? I, I think it's big is bad, right? Right, that was it. So big is bad. I, I think we, we sort of generally have this idea. And I, I often think it comes directly from the wine trade, but I'm not entirely sure that's that's true. Where we sort of go, oh supermarkets are bad, big is bad. I think there's there's a lot of good things about supermarkets. Let's be honest. You know, the supermarkets buy from a lot of big a, a lot of cooperatives and mm-hmm. Supermarkets have gone into these cooperatives around the world and cleaned them up. You know, a big supermarket like Tesco, for example, would go in there and, and you know, it's these audits and say so you need to clean up this operation. And so, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, I, actually, I, I have some experience in this in this area where we are fortunate enough to supply Tesco as Balfour. And I, I say fortunate enough, and I know it sounds tongue-in-cheek, but it genuinely isn't. We started supplying them way back in 2016. In those days, we were making not very much wine. <laughs> and Tesco represented probably 25% of our sales when we came on board. Yeah, Tesco came in and they insisted that we have something called a HACCP and a quality manual and things like that. And at the time... Well, some, some, like, a HACCP, isn't that some kind of like ancient Russian 
garment for dancing. Oh no, that's a no, that's a cassock, and it's not Russian. <laughs> and it's and not it's, Russian. I don't know why I thought it was Russian, but no, I was thinking of Cossacks. That's, uh, that's oh, Cossack. Yes, no, they insisted that we have a, had a small man who kept doing this weird dance where he stuck his legs out, but he's very low to the ground. Uh, well, no, well, no, no, but... There is an internal logic in what I was thinking there, and I'm going to come back to that in just a second, actually. Sorry, carry on. I look I look forward to hearing the justification for Cossack. But anyway, <laughs> at the time when we started this, I was like, oh, God, this is really irritating. I now have to fill in paperwork about everything I do, and I now have to track my lock codes and things like that but six years on i couldn't imagine making wine in another way because it's it's tightened everything up everything that we do it's you know it's not stymied us creatively i'm still making strange wines i'm still experimenting with different styles it's not like i've become a slave to a slave to the corporate machine but i at the same time when we carry out a disgorging run we run a full qc analysis on it and we sign it's, it off and it's, it's all of it, that it's all yeah of that, it's which about is... getting it right and making sure that actually the consumer is protected not just in the sense of protected from from nasties but protected mm-hmm. from a poor quality product it has it, to it, reach a certain standard and it's driving that, standards yeah. it's driving quality it's driving consistency absolutely and you know, the supermarkets are a shop front that most people use and don't find intimidating. But the, the other interesting angle from this is I am very regular when I do my, you know, I do a lot of consumer events, both through my day job and freelance. I am very regularly asked by consumers what my opinion is of supermarket wines. And often they kind of lead with the discounters, Lidl and Aldi. And I, th- I think they're doing that. that, that there's a loaded perspective. That I think there's an agenda in that question. But the broader mm-hmm. question, you know, basically do am I being looked down on because I buy from the supermarkets and that led me to this thought that the people in the trade who see an issue with consumers buying from the supermarkets and again as with most things I say there's a broad nuanced discussion I have realized that I'm not I'm a blanket statement I'm saying is correct but with those consumers who may be concerned about buying from the supermarkets in terms of am I being judged or am I not getting the great quality wine or, or those in the trade who see it is a bad thing I, I it just occurred to me that there's a quote from Epictetus which is people are not disturbed by things, but by the view they take of them. And it's kind of, we're kind of making the problem out of something that isn't the problem. Lots of people buy mm. wine in the supermarkets. That's great. That's people interacting with wine, buying wine in a way that they want to and they're comfortable with. And maybe that's kind of the entry into wine. You know, maybe that's the yeah. starting point. It's not a bad thing. But it just, we kind of talk ourselves into a problem so often in the world of wine. And we kind of make out like the super, people buying wine in the supermarkets is a problem. And it isn't. And it reminded me of an old Max Miller routine, which is this this, this sort of farmer. And he, he wants to go off and borrow his, his, like his neighbour's plough and his neighbour's like 10 miles away or something. So the, the farmer starts off on this walk to go and get borrow this plough. And on the walk, the farmer sort of goes, oh, oh I don't know. I don't know if he'll lend me the plough because uh, my wife and his wife sort of had a fallout two years ago or something. And he carries mm. on walking a bit. And then he goes, oh, actually, him and I had a disagreement and we haven't spoken for six months. And all these things go through his head. And he basically gets to, to this other farmer's house and he knocks on the door. The farmer mm. opens it and he just goes, keep your fucking plough. And he walks <laughs> off and goes back home. You know, it's like, we... We, we, we kind of talk ourselves into a problem where there isn't one. Mm. And, it, you know, we, we often get that, that idea of wine's very snobbish and pretentious. Actually, most people I hear say that kind of work in the trade and they're the ones who are at the forefront of going, I'm going to demystify wine. But it, like, so this is where the internal logic thing was, where you were talking about a HACCP and somehow I got to a Cossack dancer. My own yeah. internal logic there, like that self it was actually quite logical. You could, you could pick it apart and see where my head had gone. And it reminds me of, it's sort of like Monty Python and the Holy Grail with the, uh, she, she's a witch. Well, how do we work out if she's a witch? Well, if she floats, what, what else floats? Like small rocks, cider, and a duck. So if she, if she weighs the same as a duck, she must be a witch. Now, internally, as a self-contained piece, that is faultless in terms mm-hmm. of logic. It cannot be picked apart. When you look at it from the outside, you see it for the nonsense it is. So I sort of wonder all of this, I mean, we're talking about the supermarkets right now, it's what's true of this conversation, as if maybe big is bad and it's a problem. Isn't, it's people accessing wine, drinking wine, enjoying wine, which ultimately gives you a job. 
and and as you've just mentioned, yeah. you know, Tesco's have, have done an awful lot for you. And I know you and I have talked about this before, but I don't think we've done it on one of the episodes. And I'm not just saying this because Fergus is my friend and, and gives me discounted Balfour White big and because he's my friend and he's here. Lee's and my friend. <laughs> White making friends. I'm I have a friend. <laughs> But genuinely, I think the best value English wine, English sparkling wine you can buy on the market today is Tesco's finest English sparkling, which is made by Fergus at Balfour Winery on the Hushith Estate. I'm not saying that is the best English sparkling wine, but in terms of the sheer value, what you pay for it and what it gives you back, I think you're hard pushed to beat that. And I say yeah, that, I... I would say that if I was recording this with, with Brad from Nightimber or... Tommy from Langham or Emma from Hattingley, not Hattingley. You know, oh, all she's, the greats of English yeah. wine. I'm 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 incredibly proud of I'm incredibly proud of our supermarket wines, the whole range, because actually we make lots now. You know, we make for Marks and Spencers, we do four wines for them. Mm-hmm. We do two wines for three wines for Tesco. And these are all own label as well. These are these are, mm-hmm. you know, um Tesco finest. Marks and Spencer just have their own back label, but you know, it's exclusive to Marks and Spencer co-op we do at the eight acre rosé you know supermarket makes up a big part of our of our business and those wines i'm every single one of those wines i would proudly present to anyone i i really love them i love making them they still represent you as much as they represent the tesco brand or the Mm. co-op brand they still and you know they they want good wine i was i I just uh, yeah i just i sort of had this this one thing that was sort of stuck in my head because for those that don't know, we might be recording this little segment slightly after we finished, started recording this episode. But I've sort of been thinking about it for the last week or so, and just in my head, no one goes out and goes, you know what, I'm going to make a really crap wine, and I'm going to sell it really cheap. It, no one, that's not, that, that. everyone wants to make the best product they possibly can with the materials and the budget that they've got. And so actually... You know, if they're doing if they're doing two hundred thousand bottles of Pinot Grigio from Italy, they're not going to deliberately try and make something that's not good. <laughs> they're going <laughs> to know. make the best they can they're for that. They're going to make the best they can. That's going to and that hit that price point. And it's it's yeah. horses for courses, right? But a, a well-known idiom. It is horses for courses, and and ultimately, you know, I don't like to break character, but I'm going to do that, and I do this at the end of every single tasting I run. I go, well, ultimately, if your favourite wine is a six quid Pinot Grigio from Tesco. That is no less valid than somebody's favourite wine being a five hundred pound claret from an independent merchant. That, I mean, it's the, a lot no cheaper as well. It is significantly <laughs> get a lot more of it. But yeah, um, I think it, at, at, at the risk of you know going on and on and on, I think we should pro- probably draw this to a close, having reached a, a kind of non-conclusive conclusion. Bleak isn't bad. If you enjoy drinking whatever that wine is, that's brilliant, and I yeah, would drink to that. I I agree. I, yeah. You're right. Well, brilliant. So, what's that, um, what's what are we doing next? Next, because we've done Biggest Bad, you know, and I don't want anybody to have the. Oh, you know, the now we must that we do. Might have thought about this. What should we do next time, Ferg? Oh, I think we should probably do something about uh, water usage in the winery. Yeah, I, I think I'd be very. I think that's what the people want to hear. Is you know, I, I, I think we should have a discussion on how acidity affects the differences between molecular sulfur, ionized sulfur, and then. Add- like potassium metabisulfate fight 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 or you know we did like so the strap line was like big is bad could we do small is super could it be small is beautiful i know we're losing the alliteration but i just like small is beautiful small is beautiful it flows i love beautiful it's a lovely word it's a lovely word to say it's a beautiful word i think i think that will be a nice counterpoint to whatever this episode has professed to be is to go from the very big to the very small. That sounds good. We should, you know, try and get someone else to talk about this stuff, though. Well, do you think we could find a... a did you find the guest? Did you send that email or make that phone call? Uh, I, 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 I sent a Twitter DM, and then oh, I appeared at their house with a van. And, He's in and the you, bundled, you bundled... Or she. Guest. Um, I just need to check this, because obviously you're busy with Harvest and you're, you're running your multiple presses. Have mm. you remembered to you know throw them some food some like a, a toasty for example uh, well yeah actually funny you should mention it they i threw them a three kilo block of cathedral city and a <laughs> magnum, magnum of- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was yesterday so judging by my own personal consumption rates they are due a top-up this evening 
you know, three kilos a day, that's about power, right? Well, yeah, I think so. Well, I should probably let you go and do that. I'd like to say, as always, an absolute pleasure talking to you. (laughs) May your your grapes always be ripe and your hangovers brief. Uh, And and the very same to our listener. Uh, I hope they've enjoyed this. And I hope they join us. (laughs) And I, I hope they join us again next time for Small is Beautiful. Can't believe we're doing another episode. I know. So sooner or later, this will be this will be cancelled. I mean, are we cancelled because you were too woke? No, we just weren't very good. It was just a bit of shit. It was just I'm waiting. Awful. I'm just waiting for a cease and desist letter from anyone. <laughs> any, we are the standards agency, and you have not hit any standards. We would like you to stop. We would like you to stop. Stop spouting now. drivel. <laughs> <laughs> but we do it so well. Dude, always yeah. a pleasure. I hope Harvest Cheers, continues man. to go well. And um, I'll catch you next time. Cheers. I will see you on the flip. Ciao. Pew.